welcome to the Two Year Bible, a custom designed two year Bible reading plan with a weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and Sarah Pasqua, our executive director. Hey there. And we are at week 11. Woohoo. Uh, and we are finally getting to Sinai. We are finally um, going to arrive there. Uh, and if we're in Luke, we're kind of in the middle of it still. And so, um, yeah, hopefully your reading um, has been good. This is. Uh, still the more interesting section of Exodus in terms of narrative and story. Uh, Cause when we get to the back end, ooh, it's going to be a little different. And so, um, yeah, but we are uh, coming upon stories like uh, the starting one in chapter 17 of, of the striking of a rock. And um, this is uh, uh, a bit of a story that has some parallels towards the end also of G- the Israel's time. Uh, and we'll get there when we get there. Uh, Israel's time wandering in the desert, but um there's interesting symbolism here because uh, the way the Hebrew works, um, God is very much um, not next to Moses when he strikes. It almost is presented as the God is almost standing in front of Moses as he strikes this rock, as if um, at, at a cost himself, at the striking of God himself, he will provide for his people, which, come on, that is Jesus symbolism all over it. Enough that, I mean, even Paul will say, Jesus was the rock. <laughs> it's like right. vague at that point. Yeah, I just I want to read that passage from First Corinthians ten because the connection is so strong. A lot of times we have to work to find this gospel connection, and it's just kind of given to us here. Paul says, "I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ." And then it goes on to talk about their disobedience. But yeah, Jesus was the rock. He stood between us and the law. He was struck by the staff of judgment and brought us uh, living water. Yeah. And so. Um, it, so this is, sorry, I keep interrupting. No, no, so ahead. this is God's provision for them. Like literally they were thirsty, but we see how it points to the greater spiritual provision yeah, for us. And, and there's continued language uh, in the previous test and, and in this test, the, the sort of idea of God's presence. I will be with you. I'm not leaving you. I will provide for you yeah. uh, throughout this whole storyline. And then we end up, uh, Israel ends up in their first battle, per se. It's not going to be their last, certainly. Uh, but um, they, they have this run in with Amalek. Uh, and we even see, uh, we'll get to Deuteronomy 25 later, but in Deuteronomy 25, we find that Amalek is a pretty terrible individual. I mean, he's attacking the slowest and the weakest, the weakest of the Israelite crew. Right. Um, and, and so uh, we get um, Moses holding this stick as um, tied into the battle um, that he goes up on the hill, holds the stick up, um, his, his staff up, and, and whenever it's raised... Uh, they're winning and whenever it drops they're losing and so it, it's kind of a weird story it carries with it this little bit of like i don't know mysticism uh, around what's happening here but um uh, I, I think there's some uh interesting visuals around him holding the stick up um and then finding out um uh, the, the Lord is my banner uh, that sort of uh, statement uh, God is my banner because um most temples would have carried uh, banners for their gods. They would have been on the highest point and you'd see them from far away. Um, and so Moses holding the stick up during the victory, his staff up, uh, which has constantly been a symbol throughout this book, uh, his little shepherd's staff um, is a symbol of his shepherd God mm-hmm. um, in the banner uh, that is 
being flown over his people. And so um, I think there's beautiful imagery parallels happening there. Yeah. And I think if we're looking for personal application, there's a little bit of a tension here to walk because we see that God is the one who fights him in these battles, but Moses also plays a role in it. Uh, And I think that's kind of the same with salvation and sharing the gospel with others. It's not up to us to win people to Christ, but we are to enter the fight and share the gospel and play a role in the work that God is doing to win people. Yeah. You're obedient to your role in whatever God's process is. Um, and then we see Jethro, God's, uh, uh, Moses's uh, father-in-law. Um, we love Jethro. Yeah, Jeth- He's great. He just does good stuff through the whole book. Yeah, I'm sort of waiting for uh, a flaw. And maybe Moses is like, I'm not going to, he's my father-in-law. I'm not going to write anything bad about him. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, when the Israelites are grumbling through the desert, uh, Jethro, this Midianite, hears the news and responds in worship. And um, yeah, and so um, they uh, develop sort of um, uh, a structure to handle the grievances to handle the decision-making, all those sort of things amongst God's people, because Moses just can't do it all himself. And Jethro gives advice on how to make that happen. And tied into as a little bit of language of also like how to hand down the teachings of God, that how, how will we multiply what God has taught us? And so before they get the law, it's almost like they get a system of, of how God's teachings mm-hmm. will go forth to the people. Yeah. And think of how closely Moses walked with God and he still couldn't take care of everybody on his own. Nope. Leadership is meant to be delegated and discipleship is meant to be shared across a lot of people, not one centralized. Yeah. Holy Spirit empowerment does not make you infinite. Uh, You're still finite in the process of that. And so, um, and it's meant to be that way. Mm -hmm. And so we get to Sinai. Uh, We finally get back uh, to where Moses has his bush experience. And so, um, and remember, God said to Moses, like, my promise to you that you're going to see me do this is that you're going to end up back at this mountain. And here he is. Yep. He made it. The promise came true, um, which Moses will remind God about his promises later <laughs> on in another story. Um, but uh, I, I think it's good, too, that we get a reminder. And God does this a few times in this process to say, look, I'm the one who redeemed you. I've brought you out of Egypt. I've, I've released you from slavery. Like that has happened before he gets into the law, before he, he tells them how now they will be his people, what that will look like in terms of how they live and all that kind of stuff, he has already redeemed them from slavery. And, and that sequence, I think, is really important. Um, it wasn't like clean up your act in Israel or in Egypt, and then you can come be my people. It's I'm going to redeem you. Now I'm going to start telling you what it looks like uh, to walk with me and to be my people. And we get beautiful imagery uh, in some of the language around treasure and kingdom of priests and a holy nation. and so Yeah, I, yeah. I want to just pause for a second on this idea of being a kingdom of priests. Remember, the role of a priest is to mediate between an individual and God. And so Israel, I mean, they will have priests, but Israel being called a kingdom of priests means that they are to mediate between God and others, which means all nations. Here we come back to that Genesis 12, 3 promise that uh, Abraham was blessed to be a blessing to all peoples. Israel is not supposed to keep their God to themselves, but they are to invite others into that relationship with God. Yeah, the whole little priesthood set up uh, in Israel almost feels like the microcosm of what God ultimately wants to do uh, to his people, that they would be the people to speak for God and speak to God uh, on behalf of the nations um, and and to be the ones who... Um, um, share who God is with the rest of the people. Yeah. And I think the other thing I want to hit right here, well, first of all, understand that 
chapter 19 is really kind of a turning point in the story or in the book of Exodus. We're kind of in the second half where we're hearing less stories and more laws and rules. Uh, but there's a huge emphasis on the people being set apart. And that's the idea of being a kingdom of priests. But understanding that set apart is the same word as holy, is the same word as sanctified. And understanding that God is inviting Israel into a relationship with him. He has offered and promised to dwell with them, but he's still different. He is still other. And so they are still to approach him with reverence and fear. And I mean, honestly, if you like step back and read through this chapter and imagine what's going on here, it's it's pretty terrifying. <laughs> yeah. And that is the same God that we worship today. And while we have access to him through the intercession of Christ and the work of Christ, we still need to understand that that God is is other than us and is worthy of all of our worship. And he is holy in a way that we cannot be outside of the work of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he, when we get to Hebrews, there's some good job of breaking down even the, the mix of that, of like what's Mount Sinai was like and what Mount Zion's going to be like. And um, some of the ways that they are different, but some of the ways they're the same, they are also God's mountains, God's presence, God's dwelling places. And so, um, and there's also some marriage uh, imagery playing out in sort of the opening here. And um, there's a little bit of chicken egg on that conversation, but um, I, I would argue there's certainly um, even into the rest of scripture, some picture of like the marriage of God and his people in the story. like he, he'll even go on to say, like I, I was like a husband to you in the desert. Mm-hmm. And so um, this picture of God marrying his people in this process. Yeah. <laughs> And so we get well, the Ten Commandments. Yeah, well known to many of us. Yeah. What are some of the other terms that people use for Ten Commandments? Um, so uh, the word commandment is not technically a word in the text. Uh, uh, we we the Hebrew people particularly will call them uh, the Ten Words, um, and sometimes even break it down all the way up to thirteen words. But um, the Ten Words, which um, it, one one term that many people use, particularly in like nerdy. Uh, seminary type worlds is is decalogue which mm-hmm. just means 10 words in greek um and so um yeah it's and so th- there's there's some complications around how the numberings work and why jewish people have a slightly different numbering but uh all in all they still say the same things right and so um, and these are the foundation to what it looks like to be free from being enslaved to others yep um, and once again we get the opening recap i saved you from israel or i saved you from egypt so now here here's how to live um and and we're not going to go in detail of all of these 10 uh we may just highlight a few things um and and to me like uh, there's a few things that stick out like command number two um i think it's a complicated one like are images of jesus going to be okay all these sort of questions that as new testament people there's there's something to wrestle through um but I, i think it's also important to highlight in that text at least like the ratio of God's graciousness in the story. It's like, look, if you disobey three or four generations, but if you obey, bless for thousands of generations. And um, the, the weight that God puts on his graciousness towards the, the people, not to say he doesn't desire obedience, doesn't desire holiness or any of those sort of things, but... Um, his mercy yeah, and there's, his there's a chesed, highlight of which his is mercy. his steadfast love. I think also with the second commandment, no images, we hear in Colossians 3, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Right. So God finally has an image, and it's Jesus Christ. Yep. Um, in command number three, I mean, the Sabbath thing is is always um, interesting to unpack, um, that this is a holy day, a set-apart day, a distinct day that no one would work Um uh, and, and so we're going to we're going to touch on it a little more as we continue through uh, Exodus. I'll, I'll deal with some of that when we get there. But just think a little bit. And what we don't Chris and I are not we're still working out what we believe on the Sabbath. And I think <laughs> we may not believe the exact same things about it yet. Well, but we're know. still in we process. <laughs> um, 
But it, it is really interesting that we would have no question about following the, the other nine commandments. And yet somehow we make the Sabbath optional. Uh, and I'm not saying you should or shouldn't necessarily, but I am saying think about it. What yeah. is the reasoning behind that? Have you considered that? Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah. And, and some of the other commandments, Jesus will certainly uh, spend some time talking about, and we'll get there when we get to like Sermon on the Mount and Matthew or things like that. Um, but um, yeah, this, there's there's definitely some interesting highlights uh, in the Ten Commandments. So then I'm kind of torn. Verse 19, Israel comes to Moses and they're like, this God, he's like too much for us. We don't want to talk to him anymore, Moses. You go and speak for us. Uh, at some point, that's disappointing. I, But at the same time, they're not really reprimanded for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I don't necessarily know um, what to make because it's, it's not necessarily referred to as if it um, should have been a punishable offense at any point. And so, um, I mean, even, even Moses struggled to draw near uh, the first time he had an encounter with God, which was much less dramatic than this moment. Um, right. That was a burning bush and he, he was uh, afraid. And so um, I don't know, it, at some level is probably a rightful response to everything that's happening in that moment. Uh, I'd, I'd be pretty frightened myself. Um, so uh, and you're already time, told about like, even if there's an animal that starts going up the hill, just kill it as soon as you can. So like, there's some seriousness that they're thinking through. But yeah, at, yeah. At the same time, like if, if this is like a marriage ceremony too, it's like, oh, but like, come, come be with me. This is, this is, you're going to be my people. Like, what is, what is being in the presence of God really look like? And when should we not be afraid of that too? Right. And, and there are going to be times that being in the presence of God is going to wreck you. And I don't want to be someone who would rather not be wrecked. Yeah. Yeah. But even when angels show up, people like freak out. So oh, yeah. They fall on their faces <laughs> as the dead and things right. like that. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we're going to start moving into um, these various laws. Um, the the uh, So we'll see. I don't know if this is the right time to say it, but I'm going to say it. We'll see these three different kinds of laws, which we'll talk more about later. But you have the moral law, and those are the Ten Commandments. They were written on tablets of stone. So they were meant to be eternal uh, and kind of illuminate our fallen state. And then what we're going to talk about here with the laws about altars is the ceremonial law. So these were laws that gave attention to God, how we did sacrifices, feasts, diet, clothing, circumcision. And they were written on parchment paper, which would imply that they were meant to be enacted for a season. Yeah. Um, and, and this whole section uh, is, is traditionally called the, the, the Book of the Covenant, the, the, the sort of introduction to some laws. But we're going to spend the next like four books talking through laws. So uh, be ready for that. Um, or at least the next three books, uh, be ready for that. Uh, but um, this is this is the start of that section. Um, and, and some sections, you're just going to have to kind of grin and bear it and try to understand what the laws are about or how they connect to Christ. Um, but some will stand out more than others. It's just, yeah, it's just what, what we got. This is a law code and law code's not always the most exciting thing <laughs> in the world. Um, and so, uh, but we get laws around altars. Um, it's not supposed to be ornate or elaborate. It's like use uncarved stone. Like you use things that God has made and created. As Which is are. cool. Yeah. Like yeah. we're not the ones creating it. God has created the yeah. things that we are to use to worship him. Right. And then later on, People do get to create things, but right. at this point, not. Um, and then laws about slaves. Uh, so I, this is the judicial law. I didn't I forgot about that part. Or the okay. civil law. And so these are laws about the culture and the morals, excluding the Ten Commandments, which is the moral law, um, and also written on parchment. 
And I want to make a few statements about slavery because this will mm-hmm. not be the last time we encounter the word slaves. Um, that um, the sort of chattel slavery that um, define like American versions of slavery, harsh, indentured, the kidnapping of people, particularly because of a specific race, um, that doesn't have really any parallel to some of the patterns that we see right. here. Um, ancient slavery um, involved people uh, becoming slaves because of um, – uh, poverty or debt. Uh, sometimes it was a way to not be homeless, uh, is to be uh, under the, the ownership of a, of a landowner or a homeowner. Um, sometimes uh, like in bankruptcy or something like that, that you would work to pay off your debts. Um, or if you were a thief, sometimes it would be part of restitution. Um, but uh, there were all sorts of laws involved in that. Like you could not have a lifelong servant that was prohibited by law and they had to be released uh, every seven years. You couldn't kidnap someone and sell them. The very thing that American slavery was built upon um, was not allowed according to the law. And so uh, sometimes when we read the word slave or read some of the descriptions of slave, uh, I, 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 yes, this is an ancient culture and definitely a little bit of a challenge to our sensibilities uh, in 21st century the West. But um, I think we also can't equate it with what um, the heinousness of the American pattern of slavery uh, to what is happening here. And if anything, God's laws are actually providing justice and and protections for the slaves uh, as opposed to the slave owners. Yeah. And I think I'm not going to say that. Never mind. (laughs) Yeah. You never know. Um, But even things like, Hey, if you, if you strike a a slave and you knock its tooth out, well, you, it gets to go free. Like there's, there's even physical protections put in place uh, around uh, injustice towards slavery. So, mm-hmm. and I think it comes back to the fact that we are all made in the image of God. We're all image bearers, right. and so a lot of these laws are built around honoring the image that God has made and honoring the dignity right. and value of human life equally, no matter what your contribution is or is not. And so, to take somebody's life or to hurt them is it's despicable before God because God has made us in his image. Yep. And then we get laws around the eye for the eye, um, which I I would probably argue, uh, particularly getting into how Jesus will come around these things that, that God is restraining his people, uh, that the sort of going back to the story of Dinah, the sort of, um, um, unequal retribution, um, is not okay. That, that the punishment should fit the crime. That is not okay to, to destroy a person because they stole something from you or something along those lines. Laws about restitution. Yeah. These are pretty straightforward. You break it, you bought it. (laughs) That's sort of what's played out there. Um, And, and even the sort of repayment of things like theft and other things like that, which we'll see in the new Testament, right, Sarah? Yeah. So remember that's what Zacchaeus did. So he is following this law of restitution and paying everybody back fourfold for what he took. Yep. So he's a good Torah observant. Money stealer. Uh, and so and then we get laws around social justice. Um, there's some protection around women here um, that, um, that that is to make sure the women don't end up um, sort of not in their homes anymore. If they were taken out of their father's home, but then kicked out of another home, that they're not a destitute and on the street. Uh, it was protections for them. Uh, and then he's protecting the sojourner, the widow, the orphan, yeah. the poor. And I, and I love, he's got these sort of um, one liner laws, but whenever he comes to the stranger, um, God always seems to give them a reminder. So do not mistreat the stranger or oppress him for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. It's like, he constantly wants to remind them like you don't mistreat others because you know what this is like, you know what it means to be mistreated. 
And so we also have the laws about Sabbath and festivals. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think it's important to note out, uh, note, note, to note that uh, what, um, yes, God's giving all these laws, but one of the things he commands his people to do is to party. To celebrate. Like, yeah, they celebrated his, like a lot. Yeah, there's a whole lot of them. And when we get to Leviticus, we'll get a lot more details about it. But there's just all sorts of um, things that, that they are told to, to celebrate, to have these feasts, to have these meals, to have these celebrations as part of their life. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the conquest of Canaan is promised. Um, they're promised that, that this will happen. And um, once again, in this text, we, we see a lot of the if-then statements in the Mosaic Covenant, that if you do this, then you can have this land, or if you obey, then this. And so um, the Mosaic Covenant is talked, to, talked about as sort of a, a works as opposed to a grace-based covenant um, that uh, is based upon sort of conditional statements, that they will have the land and stay there if they do certain things. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. And they never quite get there. Nope, nope. They never fully realize close. the boundaries of the land itself, but they get close. <clears throat> and so let's jump to the New Testament. Luke 17, the coming of the kingdom. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's a little bit of the interesting in the Greek. It's it's um, it's it's supposed to read the kingdom will not come with um, hostile examination. Observation is probably just not the best word. It, I don't think the, the, the Pharisees are just trying to observe the kingdom. I think they're coming to Jesus with this hostile examination. Jesus saying, this is not, this is not it. Like, and you're missing it because I'm the king. Like you're trying to hostily examine me and try to ask me all these questions, but I'm the king. I'm right in front of you and you're missing it. Um, and so, um, and then Jesus starts speaking um, kind of, uh, apocalyptically mm-hmm. uh, around things that are going to come. There's going to be a lightning in the sky. Everyone's going to see it. It's like, it's going to be the most public event in human history. So you're not going to miss it. Um, but he also even points to his cross in the midst of that. He's like, but like, there, you're not going to understand it unless you understand my suffering. And, um, and, and so um, he, he calls his people to live a life in a particular way um, because you just don't know when the day is going to come. Yeah. I think we need to do everything we do with a bigger picture in mind. What we are doing is not in vain. And it's not unseen or unacknowledged, but there will be a return of Christ and there will be a judgment. So like we read earlier in Luke in the parable of the wedding feast, we've got to be ready for the return of Christ and know who we live for and who we live to. Don't, unlike Lot's wife who looked back. So I think the purpose of this passage is to make clear that Jesus is returning. His kingdom has already come partially and that we are to be ready for it. Uh, it's not necessarily the specific literal details of how it's going to happen. So stop imagining the left behind series. If yeah. that's something well, you're doing. That's a, that's a piece of theology. I also like to correct here because like the, the first, uh, the setup is, is like, it's like the days of Noah. Now in the days of Noah, did the wicked or the righteous get swept away? The, the, wicked, the wicked, the wicked get swept yeah. away. They get pulled away. And, and so the, the ones left are, are the righteous ones. And so, um, for whatever reason, left behind series and sort of that theology around the end times, like completely reverses that. I have no clue sort of the, the root of why, but that is not what's played out when Jesus speaks to, about these things. But anyways. So, so then we go to the parable of the persistent widow. Yeah. Who is asking for justice from this ruler this just yeah. this, this judge who is unjust um once again this is one of those uses of luke using like a more negative story to present a more positive truth right um, and what's kind of nice about this parallel parable is that you know what it's about because yeah. he says that it's that we always ought to pray and not lose heart so we know the point of it 
Yeah. And, and I think it even ties into the previous story. Like, yes, things are going to go terrible and things are going to go harsh and things are going to go wicked and you need to persevere. And so if you're there, if you're asking for justice, you're praying for justice because things have gone like to hell in a handbasket in, in Israel, like know that God is just and that justice will still happen for you. And so I think that still plays into this day. Like you may not see it. You may not see God's justice play out, but, but God is just and good and he will hear your prayers for that. Right. So, so I would think we said this, but I'm just going to reiterate, we are not, God is not an unjust judge. God is a just judge. Oh yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. The and, negative, the negative version of Luke and then the positive right. version of reality, like how much more will a just judge understand and respond to and injustice? Bring about justice in his perfect timing. Yep. And a Pharisee and a tax collector. Once again, this is Luke condemning the Pharisees and hiking up an unlikely hero in the story uh, to contrast against. And um, yeah, I mean, some of the heart positions and problems in these two individuals, one is humble, understands their brokenness, understands their sin, is calling out to God. And the other one's exalting themselves, justifying mm-hmm. themselves. Here's the things I've done. Um, and and which one does Jesus praise? Um, that's, it's the tax collector. It's the one who has a position of humility. Um yeah, and he ends it with, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And we said that exact same verse in Luke 14, verse 11, after he talks about the parable of the wedding feast. Yeah, and so um, humility is of high value uh, in Jesus' kingdom, and so um, which is important. I think sometimes mm-hmm. we like the checklist of what we've accomplished, and I think Jesus is more interested in the humility of our heart than the checklist of religiosity that we can bring to the table. Yeah. <clears throat> he says, let the children come to me. Um, you had this child and Jesus kind of, I don't know, uses the child for an object lesson. <laughs> I don't know how to say it more kindly than that, but um, children had a um, kind of a low value in culture, like without honed skills, without jobs, without being old enough yet to contribute. Um, it's, they were there. They were something that with potential, but they were just kind of there. And so um, Jesus, um, I think, is is presenting that, that sort of picture of like, you come to me. You don't come to me with your accomplishments and all the things that you do or something like that. You come to me um, as as like like a child that, that doesn't necessarily bring anything to the table uh, in, in the moment. You just bring yourself. Yeah, which is a good illustration right after that statement about humility. There's yeah. nothing kids bring to the yeah. table. Yeah. Um, which is contrasted with the rich young ruler right. who has everything to bring he to the he's table. Bringing everything. Um, yeah. And, um, he's, he's got wealth. He's accomplished the, the law. Well, I mean, he, even Jesus doesn't like throw him under the bus being like, there's no way you actually lived up to all those laws. He's like, okay. Um, but you still lack something and what he lacks uh, apparently has to tie into his finances. Um, maybe this is going back to the teaching about serving two masters that we had not long ago in Luke, um, that look, you, you either serve, you either uh, follow me and, and allow me to be your master or you allow money to be your master. And what do you really want? Um, and it seems clear what, or at least he walks away sad. I guess who knows? Maybe he actually repented. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. And something to clear up here is that statement about the eye of the needle and a camel going through it. We are pretty sure that there was not, contrary to what is popularly taught, that there wasn't like a gate in a city wall where you would have to take all the stuff off the camel so the camel could walk through. Because uh, the disciples said it was impossible <laughs> yeah. for a camel to go through. And that's not impossible. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with Jesus speaking hyperbole. And he's, I think he's doing it here. Like the eye of a needle small, camel big. Like it, it's good. It, that should sound impossible. Um, 
And that's why he sort of comes around to be like, look, yeah, if it's up to you, if you think it's your wealth, if you think it's your perfect obedience, that's going to get you into heaven. And no, yeah, it's impossible. By man, that's impossible. Like salvation can only happen by that work in the hands of God. And so um, with God, that's the only way that salvation is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think Jesus is making that clear. Yeah, and then Jesus foretells his death. Uh, maybe third, fifth, I sixth. think it's more than the third time, but yes. <laughs> He's done it a few different times. Points to the Son of Man, which is, uh, at least in this text, I think very much meant to be Daniel 7. But uh, he's clarifying for them, look, suffering, I'm going to be spit upon, I'm going to be mocked. Then, then is when Daniel 7 will happen. I will be risen from the grave. Then the, 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 the Son of Man will be vindicated, will go to the Ancient of Days and actually have dominion over all things. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Jesus. Then he was a blind beggar on yeah. the way to Jericho. Yeah, um, and uh, it, it, we at the end of the last section, uh, it talks about the the disciples um, that things weren't revealed to them or they were kind of hidden from them. Um, but now we get a guy who can is made to see by Jesus, um, which is interesting. And once again, Luke's still highlighting like a blind person, a widows, mm-hmm. children, tax collectors. Uh, this is the crowd that Luke goes out of his way to point out. They're getting it. They're understanding the kingdom. The kingdom is for them. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, if he's a beggar, he's been asking people for money, uh, but he knows Jesus is Messiah. And instead he asks Jesus for mercy and for healing. Yeah. Which is great. We're going to get next week into all sorts of interesting things around people's perception of Messiah, but uh, we'll get there when we get there. Uh, and then Jesus and Zacchaeus, uh, given the two other stories about wealthy individuals in Luke, uh, the other two were like people that would be held up uh, in, in cultural norms. They were wealthy. They followed the law. Uh, they did so what seemingly honestly. Um, and then we get Zacchaeus who is a tax collector. He is doing things. Uh, he's like the chief tax collector. He is doing things. They're ill gotten gains. Um, they would have been despised by the culture. They would have been outcast. They would have been rejected and for rightful. So for some reasons, mm-hmm. um, and, um, and so, but Zacchaeus, like, a, he's happy. Like he's so happy that Jesus invites him into the home. He happily accepts uh, this 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 statement that well, Jesus kind of invites himself over his house, but uh, accepts this moment. But uh, is sort of held up, and he and Zacchaeus becomes the one um, not not only to sort of almost be redeemed by Jesus in the story, but but to to also follow the law, like he to to like the detail of the law. Like he becomes the one, as we said earlier, who gives back fourfold um, in his response. Um, so. Which is just an interesting contrast to the to the rich ruler who we just looked at. Yeah. Uh, Zacchaeus really receives Jesus joyfully and was changed through his encounter with him yeah. and his offering repayment in return. He did it without Jesus commanding it, and yeah. it was a fruit of his salvation. But yeah. of course, not the means to it. Yeah. Yeah, the first rich man gets sort of condemned in the story. The second rich man goes away sad. And this rich man is Zacchaeus, goes away happy or joyfully. Uh, And then the terrible, the 10 minus. Um, I think there's a really interesting background to the story. So if they're near Jericho, they're also near Masada. Um, And uh, there's a a history where... um, Herod the Great, who was the Herod of the Christmas stories, uh, doesn't become the Herod of the the Easter story, uh, but but the Herod of the Christmas story had a bunch of children. And when Herod the Great died, they all sort of um, jockeyed for what land was going to be theirs. And so they all all the sons sailed to Rome uh, to talk about taking over for their dad. <clears throat> now, the group of Israelites were also sent to Rome. 
to tell them that uh, Herod Archelaus, who would be over this area of the country, uh, that they didn't want him to be the, the king. Uh, they didn't want him to have uh, the throne. Um, and and Caesar ultimately gives Archelaus a, a tetrarch role, sort of like a pseudo-king role. Uh, and then um, uh, when Archelaus returns to Israel, he just slaughters all those that, that went as a delegation to, to try to stop it from happening. And so, uh, and he reigns for 10 years. There's use of 10 minus. There's all these parallels in the story that I think mm-hmm. are meant to be there. It's fascinating. <laughs> but I think it's also another lesser negative versus the greater positive story um, that, that Herod the Great, I mean, he's using sort of a, a, a negative figure to tell a greater story um, as well. Right. And two, we see... I would say, like, Jesus and the prophets to these people. Yeah. Um, and you know what? I think I'm thinking of a different parable right now. <laughs> but okay. my my conclusion, my thoughts here, is that this is also challenged us to determine what we're going to do with the gifts that God has given us. Yeah, it's absolutely about, like, what what resources did you use and did you use those wisely? Like, so you have, it's... You have resources. You yeah, have ignore money, my statement about Jesus and the prophets. (laughs) And it's more like we are these business people who Jesus sent ahead. We're to use our resources in the way that is honoring to his rule to wait for him to come here and, and gain his complete rule. Yeah. It's the wonders of this podcast. Sometimes we say things out of, out of order or out of line or whatever it may be like, Hopefully not out of line. Well, maybe not out of line, <laughs> but even like skipping over, skipping over sections or returning to them. So um, we try our best. Uh, and so we got some Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, we got at least three Psalms this week. Uh, yeah, so. Psalm 123 was, I enjoyed all of the repetition. So we see the word eyes, mercy, more than enough and contempt. We see those words so much throughout the, just the few verses in there. Yeah. And another song of a sense, this would have been used, as we said last week, mm-hmm. uh, around pilgrimages, um, even language around Sinai and stuff like that in the text. Uh, sometimes seven uh, seems very future oriented and what we call eschatological, uh, kind of about the future days. Um, God's sovereignty is justice. There's like rejoicing that's widespread. There's mention of Zion, things like that. Yeah. And I think there's imagery that's pointing us to the fact that we will know God through his creation. I was just talking to someone about that today. Romans one tells us that too, but all of creation testifies to God and his power and glory. Yep. And then Psalm 103. I love Psalm 103. Yeah, it's a good one. It's, it gets sung a lot too. Uh, but I mean, one of, one of my favorite lines, and uh, I, I, I appreciate, I, I didn't preach on it, but I used it in my text yesterday uh, at church. But um, as far as East is from the West, so far uh, he removes our transgressions from us. And the beauty of what God's um, dealing with sin looks like. It's like as far as you could possibly imagine from one side to another, he deals with it. And I heard somebody say once that like, if you go east, you can around the world, you can never, you'll never stop going east. Versus, like, if you go north, you'll eventually have to go south again. Uh, so, unless the earth is flat, right? <laughs> you, oh man, that's another theological that, conversation. Yeah, we're not, or not even a life. theological, that's just science, but uh, we won't deal with that today. <laughs> so, anyway, the east and the west is significant in that. Yep. Yeah. So next week, what should we look for? Okay. So uh, pay attention to the imagery and the descriptions of the tabernacle. See what kind of biblical connections you can find there. Where else did you see it? That's going to be tricky. And it's going to be easy to read through these stories about the building of the tabernacle and the priests and what they wear and get kind of bored with it. So so do the work. We're doing this podcast slowly so that you can spend the time to study and find significance in it. Yep. Um, and the same in the New Testament, do some research on your own in the context behind Jesus and why he cleanses the temple. And I, a little cheater verse passage is check out Isaiah 56 for that. 
That's good stuff. Uh, in the Old Testament for me, um, start paying attention at what, how many times God says things when it comes to the creating of the temple. Um, I think that'll help us That's cool. see what God's doing as part of um, the creation of the temple and what he does and what he does on a certain number. Uh, and then uh, in the New Testament, when we, when we get to that first story, um, gosh, try to find all the Zechariah, Zechariah references. There are multiples in that story of the triumphal entry, um, and they really help us interpret, I think, that story. From like the book of Zechariah, not yes. Zechariah, the husband no. of Elizabeth. No, father no, of John not Zechariah from the beginning of okay. Luke. Zechariah, I know, I was really confused. Uh, from, I was like, well, really? There's a lot? Yes, nope, we're um, talking about the, the minor prophet. Yeah, and so um, there's definitely some deep connections between Jesus's triumphal entry and that story or that book. So, um, yeah. And so thanks y'all. Thank you. Thank you.